Welcome to the American College of Mohs Surgery podcast series, Conversations in Mohs Surgery, where Dr. Thomas Kanakstadt, academic dermatologist and Mohs surgeon in Cleveland, takes a closer look at articles published in the dermatology literature by speaking with the authors and researchers involved. The podcast is an extension of the college's online bibliography, a searchable high-yield article reference library aligned with the Micrographic Surgery and Dermatologic Oncology Fellowship Curriculum, accessible to ACMS members at www.mosecollege.org slash bibliography. Listeners can suggest articles for inclusion in the bibliography or guests for this podcast by sending an email to info at mosecollege.org. That's info at mohscollege.org. Thank you for listening. Hello, this is Dr. Thomas Knackstead again for Conversations in Mohs Surgery. I want to thank all of our listeners who joined us last time when we talked to uh, Jeremy Bordeaux about the safety of complex reconstruction. Today, I'm very excited to be chatting with Jonathan Lopez, who's currently at Tampa Bay Dermatologic Surgery. Jonathan and I are going to be talking about some work that he did during his time at the Mayo Clinic. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So what we're going to be talking about is an article that, as of our conversation, is in press but not yet in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. But we're looking at opioid prescribing for acute postoperative pain after cutaneous surgery. For those of our listeners who haven't read this study yet, would you mind just starting off giving us a brief summary of what you all found and sort of the nature of the study being more of a review rather than an interventional study? Sure. So this all started during my fellowship and throughout my time at, at Mayo, we had a lot of surgical exposure during various phases of training. But as I started my fellowship, I became much more involved in primarily caring for patients. And one of the most common questions that patients had, they wanted to know, you know, what they were going to look like when they left and how much was it going to hurt while they were having surgery and after surgery. And I could answer a lot of those questions about what they were going to look like, how much it would hurt during surgery, because I, I'm there with them and I, I see this day in and day out. I would have a pretty good idea of what to expect for most patients. But in terms of how much it would hurt after surgery, how long it would hurt for, I didn't have a great grasp for that because I didn't see these patients every single day. You know, I'd see them for suture removal and sometimes would inquire with them, but it's hard to get a good feel for uh, what happened a week ago at that point sometimes. So I, I actually queried the literature and was looking around and there's actually some pretty good studies and some good data out there, but there wasn't any uh, summative recommendation to guide a clinician. There was a great JAD CME about pain management in dermatology, um, but it didn't address the specific question that I had, which was essentially, how much pain are people going to have? Who's going to have more pain? Exactly what management do they need for that pain? What should they expect? And how long is that going to last? So we, we did a, a literature search and we found specifically within the dermatology literature, in fact, six of the seven articles that we uh, reviewed only um, studied patients that underwent Mohs micrographic surgery. The seventh article studied patients that went under Mohs surgery or excisions. And the, the data was, was very revealing, especially when you put all of the studies together. There was a, a lot of good information uh, and a lot of agreement between them. And I like, um, we'll sort of go through these um, questions. I think it's great when, um, when you design a, a review paper and rather than having as your methods, we searched you know, every paper on the topic, and then we presented you with every data point. It's nice that you decided to make it really more relevant to the practitioner and say, 
who requires opioid analgesia, for how long, who's at higher risk for that, and then what are we using? And maybe at the end, we'll talk about what should we be using for, for our pain management. And so it's nice to have that structure that very much follows what a clinician would sort of think about as they're making those choices. So within the group of who requires opioid analgesia? Is there any group in particular that you want to highlight that you think either our readers may not anticipate needing it or that you were surprised in your reading that will be more likely than the general Mohs surgery patient to need uh, additional pain management? Well, what, one thing that I consistently found in these papers was that second intention wound healing patients had substantially less pain which makes some sense, but it in other ways was counterintuitive to me. I, I was concerned, I think a lot of our patients are concerned, that if they have an open wound, it'll hurt a lot. And it turns out that those patients frequently will report no pain at all. And I think that as I, I reviewed this literature, and I started to look into the, the tissue expansion literature from a few decades ago, too, that a lot of the pain that patients have are from tight closures or big, tighter, uh, large movements of skin, tighter stitches underneath the skin. And, you know, I can't prove that, but it's something that as I'm doing surgery and I'm thinking about how much is this going to hurt the patient, the amount of tightness, the amount of movement that I'm creating, I hypothesize is probably directly proportional. Yeah. And, and I, I completely agree with you. And I think over time, we learned that patients in my hands that end up having additional pain that I can predict. And we'll talk about the predicted and not so predicted pain. Those where I can predict, it's generally one of two things. I've either done some more aggressive work on deeper structures, be it bone or cartilage of the ear or the digit, or I've done a great degree of undermining, or I'm forcing a wound that's maybe a little bit tighter than I would like closed, be it on the scalp, be it really on the non-head and neck um, extremities, and especially the legs, of course. And I think that was not universal in all the studies, but some of the studies that you reviewed did point out that, yes, we do a lot of second intention healing on the legs, but all other factors aside, legs do tend to hurt patients a little bit more than other parts of the body, which isn't surprising if you consider we're on our feet all day. We all have some degree of venous insufficiency and swelling in our legs. So that was sort of a good finding that I think most of us anticipated, but it's good to read that really tension and tight wound closures are one of the main causes of pain. Absolutely. And, you know, another thing that I found that was very interesting was that there's one study in our literature and several studies outside of the cutaneous surgery literature that shows that patients that are concerned about pain tend to have, or at least to they tend to experience and report more pain postoperatively. So when a patient asks me about pain specifically, that in itself is a little bit of a red flag for me uh, in that I, I want to make sure that I uh, I'm emphasizing the role of acetaminophen, and in my practice, I add ibuprofen frequently in these patients. And I consider a short course of an opioid, especially if they have some of these other risk factors. The one factor that was not surprising to be associated with increased postoperative pain, but can complicate our management, are current opioid users. So patients that yes. are already in pain to begin with, not surprisingly, experience more pain after having surgery. But the management of them is very complicated and needs to be coordinated in a multidisciplinary manner. I, I completely agree. And if we back up to that first comment you made, the patient who anticipates pain, and I love the, the name of the study um, scales that are actually used in the literature, the, uh, the pain anxiety symptom scale or the catastrophizing scale. You know, those just tell you they're your right. classic patient who 
flinches before the needle even touches their skin. And in some ways, they're your most challenging patients unless you have good data and bedside manner to talk them sort of off the ledge. I think the patients who have chronic opioid use in my practice where I am now become some of the easiest because I do direct them towards their pain management physician because I'm not comfortable in my practice writing for acute opioids in patients who are already on chronic extended release opioid medications. I think that's one of the things that your article also emphasizes, the multidisciplinary care of those patients. All of a sudden, you're looking at comparing the strength or morphine equivalents of a fentanyl patch that they may have or their long-acting OxyContin with you adding a hydrocodone uh, acetaminophen combo on top of that, it can very quickly get very difficult. Absolutely. And my, my co-authors who are in the Department of Pain Management, they said the exact same thing. They said, don't hesitate to reach out. We want to be the people managing these, these patients and their pain. We would much rather have you reach out to us and help co-manage these patients than to just try and you know sprinkle something on for a few days, which can really rock the boat for these patients that are sometimes in a very uh, delicate balance. Absolutely. Now, with you currently being in Florida and historically having been uh, more northern, between those two practices, what, what is your current approach to the patient who you anticipate? And again, this is the patient where you think, I did a lot. They're not asking for pain medications. I did a big surgery. I know this is going to hurt. Do you mind sharing your approach to the pain management for that patient in terms of actual doses and uh, medications that you like to use? And then I'll sort of summarize what I tend to do. Absolutely. So in, in the paper, there's a figure that, that goes over, you know, if you do meet criteria for opioid analgesia, how do you get there and what steps do you take? But for my patients in my practice, I generally have a discussion with them preoperatively about uh, what to expect postoperatively before I even get started. And as I'm taking the layer and talking to them, I talk to them about acetaminophen right away. And I say, look, before the numbing wears off, especially if someone's going to be at increased risk for postoperative pain, I say, I want you to get 1,000 milligrams of acetaminophen. Frequently, we'll even give that to them in the office. And then after the layer is taken, they get our post-op information sheet, which is a one-page form, has our wound care instructions, it has my cell phone, it has you know a lot of the things that I'm sure your wound care instructions have on it. But it talks about that it's normal to have some soreness after surgery and that we encourage them to take acetaminophen at 1,000 milligrams every six hours. And if that doesn't do it for them, if that doesn't adequately control their pain, give them uh, get them to a comfortable point, then to add an ibuprofen. And if that doesn't do it, to give me a call. If I have a patient that I think is going to need more than that, which happens, I would estimate, between 1% and 5% of the time in my practice. My go-to, actually, is tramadol. And I like tramadol because it, it doesn't have any acetaminophen in it. So I can give them a prescription for tramadol, and I tell them, look, the therapeutic ladder is the same. I want you to have the acetaminophen. I want you to have the ibuprofen. And if those two don't do it for you, add in the tramadol. And the three of them work better as a team than individually. I typically write a prescription for somewhere between three and five pills, and many of my patients come back to me and say, you know, doctor, I didn't even take any of them, or I only took one pill. And that's well supported in the literature that we presented, too. It's incredible how well it correlates. And so would you say the majority, if you review or reflect back on your opioid prescribing at your two locations... What fraction of the patients are walking out of the office with a pain medication prescription versus are retroactively getting it because they're calling on 
the night of uh, surgery or post-op day one with uncontrolled pain? I guess, how proactive are you? That's a great question. And no one likes their patients to be in pain. Nobody, uh, my patients, I think, are hesitant to call me on my cell phone. Um, and they, they certainly respect that boundary. Um, but sometimes I wish they'd call me more. But I tend to be proactive. Um, I think that patients that take acetaminophen and ibuprofen, even for the bigger surgeries that we do, generally get pretty darn good pain control. But I tend to be proactive if I get the vibe that the patient's very anxious about their pain control regimen, if they report a bad experience in the past, I'll give them a very small quantity of opioid. Maybe, like I said, one to 5% of my patients, I'd estimate 3%. I'll give them three or four tablets of tramadol. And I generally sleep pretty well knowing that it, it's hard to cause too much trouble with three or four tablets of tramadol. Um, historically, before I started to do this research, especially as a trainee, I saw a wide variety of opioid selection, opioid indication, and opioid quantity. Um, so it was great to have this data behind me to uh, be able to lean on and be able to say to my patients, look, about half of our patients don't even take Tylenol. They go home and they do great with some ice or some compression and a little bit of elevation. And a lot of our patients don't have any substantial pain. I think a lot of people are relieved to hear that. Yeah, no, I completely agree now. I'm going to play devil's advocate, I guess. I'm, I'm one of two surgeons in my household. And so my wife does not write for any non-steroidal anti-inflammatories or ibuprofen for her patients for fear of bleeding. What's your approach to that or what's your thought on that in our dermatology patients and what's the literature saying? Well, particularly one of the studies that we, we cited was a randomized control trial between acetaminophen, acetaminophen plus ibuprofen, and acetaminophen plus codeine. And in our paper, we actually outline why codeine probably isn't a great selection. We can get into that later. But the acetaminophen plus ibuprofen actually had less bleeding than the acetaminophen plus codeine group. So I, I rest pretty well on it, even if patients are anticoagulated on some of the, the newer agents that might have a slightly increased risk of bleeding when compared to even with Coumadin. I don't hesitate too much to give them, to encourage them to take 400 milligrams of ibuprofen every six hours. I, and I'm, I'm right there with you. So I'm glad you mentioned that very elegant and very relevant study done in Pittsburgh. And so I'm right there with you, uh, meaning as long as my patients aren't on multi-agent anticoagulation or don't have other contraindications to the non-steroidals, be it kidney disease or peptic ulcer disease, I find that ibuprofen is by far the best pain medication that we have for these patients in terms of truly addressing it at the biochemical source. And so I'm always recommending ibuprofen. And I found it very reassuring that we have um, at least one high-level study that tells us that there's no increased risk in complications. And yet I'm still sort of reassuring my trainees, reassuring my colleagues and other specialties, and reassuring my nurses every time we uh, move forward to update our patient wound care and, and post-op instructions. So uh, I'm glad we're on the same page there. Right, right. The other thing that I was surprised to see was, as I read about the various opioids we had available, codeine actually can have a lot of trouble. About 10% of the general public lack the enzyme to activate it to its active metabolite, which is morphine. So 10% of your patients may receive no analgesia from codeine. And up to 2% of the general population are ultra-rapid metabolizers and could become toxic from commonly prescribed doses. While codeine has 
several benefits, I think, including one of them being that it's not scheduled to, meaning that uh, at least in my state, you can call it in. If a patient calls you in the middle of the night, you can't give them a schedule two medication because they need a paper prescription for that. In my practice, I, I never prescribe coding. And, you know, I've gone back and forth and I will freely admit that I had no idea. That was the one sort of hard fact that I got from your paper where I literally had no idea that 10% of the population lack that enzyme. And so I have gone back and forth. I'm now in your camp where tramadol is my primary drug of choice in the opiate category. Historically, we had used some Tylenol with codeine or Tylenol number three. And I think that I will now completely abandon that. And I um, agree that the primary indication for, for coding is really calling it in in an emergency setting after hours. And that's why I was asking about what percentage of your population you're sort of reactively rather than proactively prescribing pain medications because that's becoming harder and harder to do as the government and regulating agencies are battling the opioid crisis. It's getting harder to prescribe them, rightfully so. But for some of our patients, it does put us a little bit in a bind in terms of managing their pain after hours. Absolutely. I want to transition a little bit to something that you really didn't touch on because it wasn't per se the, the focus of your paper. Do you have any tips or tricks for day of surgery intra-op? Are you doing anything different for the patient you think is going to have predictably more pain in terms of long-acting anesthetics? What's your approach to anxiolytics? What's your approach to administering pain medications in the office? So like, like I alluded to earlier, we, we frequently will give patients Tylenol before they even leave the office. I'm a big fan of using bupivacaine throughout the, the day to minimize the amount of discomfort. We generally start with lidocaine with epinephrine. Um, and then after the first layer, we touch the patients up with a little bit of bupivacaine and we'll use a, a bit of a blend as the day goes on. I find that particularly the liposomal bupivacaine uh, has a lot of promise and particularly in my fellowship, we'd use it intermittently for a patient that uh, we took to the operating room or that we did a very large procedure on. We were concerned about giving them opioids for one of a variety of reasons. And in my experience, they truly get 48 to 72 hours of excellent pain control. And then by that point, they're not in that much pain anymore. Yeah. And I think that's becoming pretty prevalent practice from what I gather out of the plastic surgery literature for any type of breast surgery. And then certainly with the, the bupivacaine that we have access to, um, digital blocks or other regional nerve blocks if they're within the distribution of our surgery. I'll have the rare patient where I'm really worried about pain and I'll even at the conclusion of the procedure just do another ring block around the area, especially if I know they're going to be driving home for uh, a couple of hours just to give them pain uh, relief on their, on their drive home. That's a great idea. I love that. Now, what about anxiolytics? Are you using a lot of um, anxiolytics in your practice at all? We use Versed. We'd give people five or 10 milligrams of oral Versed. Again, in a very small percentage of our patients, maybe two or 3%. And in my, my private practice, I'm actively working to be able to do that. Um, however, the, the logistics of it here in Florida are complex. Mm -hmm. How about you? Yeah, so for me, I uh, tend to use, it, it sort of goes back to that patient where they're having pain because of anxiety immediately at the start of the procedure. And while I may still do the layers without any anxiolytics, 
I have had a lower threshold, especially for interpolated flaps or in my practice, um, nail unit surgery to administer. Um, usually my drug of choice is diazepam because I can get it fairly easily. And in my practice, I've found that easiest if I do a consultation with those type of patients ahead of time, large skin cancers, nail cancers, other high-risk areas, and then at the time of consultation, give them a prescription for one to two tablets that they pick up at their pharmacy with uh, specific instructions to not take that medication until they've signed consent. That's always the big challenge. You don't want your patient taking that medication and then signing consent because it raises the question of the validity of their consent since they have taken a benzo medication. Absolutely. I, I completely agree. And occasionally I'll do something similar. We offer patients to do a consult before or not to come in just for surgery and frequently patients that have had Mohs several times before, as I'm sure in your practice, they want to save their time and just come in and have everything taken care of. But patients that tend to be anxious tend to self-select for a consult beforehand, which gives you a great opportunity to do something like that. We tend to review the consent with them. And if I give them a prescription for a benzodiazepine, just as a prophylactic measure in our practice, we actually have them sign the consent while we're doing the consult. And then we have them sign the same consent again, the day of surgery. I don't know if that's really necessary or not. Well, it's a great point for our listeners. Now, before we close, um, any other points that you think we need to highlight within um, that article for our listeners? You know, there's one thing that we haven't touched on, and I don't believe it made the final version of the paper, but a lot of what initiated my interest in this was making sure that, one, my patients were comfortable and they had what they needed, but also the other side of it was that we weren't doing anything unsafe for them or their family. And a lot of the literature that's available shows that it's not necessarily the pill mills that are putting a lot of, you know, thousands of oxycodone tablets onto the street, but that there's a trickle of relatively small, you know, 20 or 30 pills of hydrocodone or oxycodone that patients will get and then hold on to uh, and keep it in their closet. And their cousins, their children, their nephews, their grandchildren uh, will later find that medication, will steal it, or in some cases, the patient will sell it to a friend or a family member. And in fact, 71% of opioids that are used illicitly in our country are from a family or friend who obtained them through a legitimate uh, prescription. So that, that really opened my eyes and said, hey, this is really important. I don't prescribe a ton of opioids, but I don't want to be contributing in any way to this trickle of drugs that are getting out onto the street. And I think based on that, which I do think there was at least a reference to in one of the papers I read, I'm probably cutting my volume or quantity described down to about your your level of five to seven tablets, whereas previously I was doing about double that. We didn't really touch on, and the paper doesn't touch on, but certainly there's a lot of challenges uh, in terms of the pain management, specifically in the elderly, where we're much more limited with our use of opioids, and we should just mention that for completeness sake, um, where you simply have the risk for hallucinations, balance loss, and then, you know, the, the complications from that being far more serious than, than anything in, in most surgery. So I do have a fairly high threshold in those patients with balance issues, early dementia, or other cognitive challenges where I worry that a narcotic medication will really just exacerbate the underlying disease process. 
Absolutely. And interestingly, most of the studies that we reviewed showed that being older was actually inversely correlated with postoperative pain. So younger patients tend to experience more postoperative pain than older patients, uh, which works out well in that regard. Awesome. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I want to thank our listeners for their attention this month again as well. The article that was discussed is also going to be included in the Moose College Reference Library. Jonathan, I want to thank you. Before I get off, I'm just going to run through a couple of housekeeping things. Thank you for having me, Thomas. Yeah, thank you. As I mentioned last time to all of our listeners, this is a new podcast. Please share this with your colleagues and trainees. Let us know how we're doing and who you'd like to have on the show. Uh, you can always contact us for feedback or questions at info at mosecollege.org. Uh, I want to remind our listeners that the submission for abstracts to the annual Mose College meeting in Baltimore is January 10th. Furthermore, as a member of the National Registry Outcome Committee, I encourage all of our listeners to join Mosaic. Mosaic is up and running. Um, should you have any questions about the Mosaic registry, you can contact Tammy O'Connell at registry at Thank you very much. Bye-bye. <laughs>